0: Compton, California, has been a small but mighty incubator of incredible talent, especially in the black community. For award-winning writers and directors like Ava DuVernay, athletes like Venus and Serena Williams, musicians like Kendrick Lamar and Dr. Dre, and nationally renowned educators and scholars like Professor Tyrone Howard of UCLA. On today's show, hear more from Tyrone Howard on what schools, can and should do to prepare a new generation of students who will reshape the world as we know it. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press and a new podcast from the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. Our Children Can't Wait is now available online at Teachers College Press and Amazon. Dr. Tyrone Howard is not only a professor of education at UCLA and the School of Education and Information Studies but also president-elect of the American Educational Research Association, representing over 25,000 members in over 96 countries. He also is co-faculty director for the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA, where we work together, and he's a top-ranked scholar for his groundbreaking work on race, culture, and education. So let's jump in. Dr. Howard, how did your upbringing shape your interests And passions as an educator and scholar
1: yeah good question you know one of the things I frequently tell my students is that I operate from this framework that research is me search Hmm. that for many of us who do this work it's usually rooted in something tied to our own personal upbringing our own personal experiences or something we feel deeply passionate and connected to so for me the work that I do is definitely rooted in my lived realities Uh, As someone who grew up here in Southern California, more specifically Compton, California, I attended schools in my neighborhood where there was tons of potential, tons of promise for young people. But for a variety of reasons, some of that potential was never realized and never materialized. And you don't understand poverty when you're growing up in it because Mm -hmm. that's your norm. But as I got older, you started to see that, you know, some of the some of the opportunities that kids in other communities had, we didn't have. Some of the resources that were present in other neighborhoods, we didn't have. Uh, the class sizes where I went to school were much larger than what I heard my friends in other communities saying that they had. So then it becomes apparent that there's something wrong here, that, that we're not all operating from a level playing field, that we're not given the same advantages and we're not given the same privileges in order to be the best we can be uh, academically and not just academically, but you know this, Joe, for our life chances. Mm. And so that stuck with me, coupled with the fact that my dad always talked about the importance of education, mm. that education, he would frequently say, is something that people can't take away from you. Get as much of it as you can, because it gives you opportunities and it helps to open pathways to a better, different life. And that stuck with me. So seeing my realities of where I grew up mm. uh, and and the inequities that were deeply embedded, which happened by the way, to occur in a community that was at that time in the 70s and 80s in Compton was 80, 90 percent black. And then hearing my dad's plea that you can do something about it and education was the way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two things motivated me to do the work that I do today. Where did your dad grow up? Just curious. Yeah, so my dad grew up in the segregated South, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And you know what's important to know about my dad's upbringing, he's part of what Isabel Wilkerson talks about with the Great Migration. There were all these Black folks between 1950 to 1970 who who migrated out of the South. My dad came West, and mm-hmm. he came West looking for a better way, better opportunity for his children so that they could have opportunities that were not afforded to him. Right. I think little did he know, though, that he went from one form of racial segregation in the deep South Mm -hmm. to another form of racial segregation uh, in the far West. So Mm -hmm. I think while our circumstances were better than what my dad faced growing up in the South, it was still deep-seated inequities that were framed around issues tied to racial injustice that I don't think he or many other folks who migrated out of the South recognized existed in the West, in the Midwest, and even in the far Northeast where we also saw black folks migrating. And was your mom part of the Great Migration or no? No she was my mom is texas my mom and her Mm -hmm. family migrated from dallas texas to southern california in the 50s again Mm -hmm. my grandfather her dad did that for the same reasons Uh, my grandfather talked about just how pernicious and how intense racism was in the south and there was just this narrative that existed amongst black folks that there were better opportunities out west Mm. there was less racism out west so he packed up his wife and his kids, and they headed out west looking for a better opportunity. So today is the
0: day after elections across the country. What's on your mind today? As we, you know, we just we talked about your 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 childhood, your mom and dad moving to a place where they hope to find greater opportunity. As you put it, less racism. What's on your mind? I'm just, I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, I'm in a really contemplative moment today and have been for the last couple of months around our election season. Because I think, now I, I've been one who, I grew up in a household where my parents always talked about the importance of voting and political participation. My dad would always say, if you're not going to vote, you shouldn't complain. Mm. If you're not going to vote, then stop you know, crying about things. So Mm. I understood at a young age, the importance of voting people who sacrificed for the right to vote because Mm. folks who look like me didn't always have that opportunity here in this country. But what is troubling to me now, Joe, is that we have become deeply, deeply, deeply divided as a country. Mm. Uh, There seemed to be little middle ground that we can establish in our political parties today. And there's almost like a Uh, What would I call it? It's almost like we're kind of going backwards in time in some ways. Yeah. Like we're kind of almost in a time warp. Like some of the rhetoric sounds like rhetoric from 1955 as opposed to 2022. Mm -hmm. It's kind of coded in different kinds of language, but it's still very apparent. You know, I think it really kind of got started with what we saw in 2016, the whole Make America Great Again. And the question I oftentimes ask is great for who? When was it ever great for certain folks who Mm look like me? But I think we just, we just, we've got to, you know, voter, voter, you know, suppression issues sounds like 1950 all over again. It just is a, it's a, it's a deeply troubling moment for me because we say we are a country that wants to be united. Mm -hmm. We say we're in quest to create this more perfect union. We say that we are a country that believes in justice and egalitarianism. opportunity Mm -hmm. but yet there are so many different ways in which people's rights and opportunities and what should be basic privileges and rights and opportunities are being denied and so that's why to me education can become so powerful of a transformative tool to help us unlearn so much of the, the ugliness that has been learned so as we think about our
0: education system you wrote a chapter called starting in school education policies to dismantle systemic racism. Well, let's unpack that. Tyrone, what do you mean by that? And what is the role of education policies even
1: today? So I think we as a nation have to come to grips with the fact that racism is our country's original sin. Mm -hmm. And from the very way in which the indigenous populations were treated to the treatment of enslaved Africans, there's always been this racial code that we've operated in. Uh, as a country and while we have made tremendous progress we are still far from where we need to be so when I talk about structural racism I frequently try to talk about not the not the insidious comments that people make or not the racial epithets that people make or not the put downs that they make about particular people who are from certain racial ethnic backgrounds I'm talking about the structures and systems and policies that are baked into the DNA Mm. of our country that has made it difficult for all people to have the right to be self-actualized. And so I think about, I mentioned a moment ago, you know, the ways in which people fought for the right to vote, opportunities for home ownership, redlining that has existed in this country. Uh, All those things matter when it comes to education because redlining, residential segregation, places where people live... Are tied to education. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Brown versus Board Act of 1954 was about how do we begin to desegregate schools in a way that gives black children and brown children the same opportunities afforded to white children. Mm-hmm. And the law has oftentimes not been in our favor, historically speaking, when it comes to racial justice. But I think the law can play a role in helping to create more of a level playing field. And so education should serve as the harbinger, if you will, mm-hmm. of hope of opportunity, of participation, of freedom, of upward mobility. Hmm. And if we can get schools right, and you can call me, you know, optimistically naive on this, Joe, Hmm. but if we can get schools right, I think we can get our largest society right. Schools should be the foundation where young people grow up to learn how to be citizens. They learn how to engage in ways that are, uh, you know, polite, civil, equitable. They help to Uh, The schools, that is, in the the abstract, should help us to create communities that are centered on diversity and inclusivity and fairness and justice. If we can get schools that do those things, I think we've got a fighting chance.
0: While it's clear that a schools-alone strategy is not the answer to addressing systemic racism in our country, schools are still the backbone of our democracy. They are the primary gathering place for preparing millions of
1: students for today and the future. Every single day, 50 million young people go to these places called schools. There's no other place that young people go to with consistency every day, five days a week, nine months out of the year, than schools. If we can't take advantage of schools in terms of that support, then shame on us. Our Children Can't Wait is the
0: book I wrote, And I made this podcast to have a conversation with you, precisely you. And so we can keep the conversation going and hear what you think about the ideas brought up by this podcast. You can email me at joe at ourchildrencan'twait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. And the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding for today's podcast comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Making conditions ideal for learning, emphasizing mental health, and addressing discipline disparities are critical places to start for in-school policies. Dr. Howard explains further, challenging the narrative around individualism, and the bootstraps mentality that falsely dominates ways to think about opportunity in America. How do we get there? In your chapter, you talk about in school policies.
1: Yeah, so a few things that I talk about. One are like, you know, these opportunities to learn. How do we give young people the opportunity to just be able to participate in educational experiences without being. Otherized without being marginalized and one of the ways in which that gets played out is when you think about Suspensions and expulsions Mm. that's been a huge area where we have struggled as a nation Where young people who come to schools who many of whom have other underlying challenges and life issues oftentimes get pushed out uh, Oftentimes get excluded and there's no data There's no research that I'm aware of Mm. that tells us that when students are suspended they come back to school better They come back Mm -hmm. to school ahead Mm -hmm. on their academics. They come to school more engaged. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what we do in this country is that we suspend at high rates. And oh, by the way, uh, black children, black boys in particular, are suspended at higher rates than anybody else. And so we've got to be upfront about what are we doing and why do we continue to punish those students who are oftentimes the most marginalized already? So we got to keep kids in classroom. We have to create opportunities to learn where all students have opportunities to have high quality, rigorous curriculum, highly qualified teachers. Uh, There's issues that we have to think about with regard to school funding. You know this, Joe, that oftentimes the poorest communities uh, don't do the same per pupil expenditures in terms of, you know, cost compared to the more affluent communities. Uh, And that's a racialized issue. As much as folks may say it's an economic issue, it's also racial too. Two things can be true at the same time. Mm -hmm. So what I try to lift up are some ways we can think about it in terms of opportunities to learn, participation in schools, uh, funding considerations. And then now there's this big focus I think around mental health and social emotional wellness. Yep. That is also I think a structural issue that has some racial implications because uh we know that the effects of COVID and this is why I, I think the book is so important now, the effects of COVID have been so intense and have had a a very detrimental impact on black and brown communities, we can't talk about moving forward educationally without recognizing some of the significant social emotional challenges that young people are facing across all ethnic and racial backgrounds, right? But we know that black and brown and poor communities were hit hardest by COVID. And so therefore we have to talk about how do we best support those students moving forward.
0: Folks will say, well, mental health, that's not the role of schools. That's a community issue. That's a child welfare issue. What do you say to folks who, who question even, or who, who have questions about the role of schools as a country in a mental health crisis
1: for young people? Yeah, that's a great question. I think you're spot on. People do raise that question and have raised that question with me. And, and what I frequently say is when folks say that's a community issue, is that there was a point in this country where schools were the anchors of communities. Mm. Schools were the hubs of communities. Schools were the meeting places of communities. Uh, Schools, along with, you know, say churches or other, you know, uh, faith based institutions were the pillars of where people came together, convened, talked about the issues of the day and tried to address the most vexing issues. Mm -hmm. We've gotten away from that. And I think we have to find ways to begin to recapture that essence and that spirit that says that if our young people are not well, schools should not be expected to address that by themselves. But they should be at the table. Young people spend uh, on average close to 40 to 60 hours Uh, A week at school yeah and so that's a place where some young people spend more time more waking hours at school than they do at home Mm. and so therefore school is a place that we I think have an obligation to support students holistically because in many ways our students can't do well academically if they're not well socially emotionally uh, if they're dealing with issues of depression or anxiety or Mm -hmm. bipolar disorders all of which are on the rise since the pandemic. So I think schools have got to be able to be more thoughtful. And, you know, Joe, we've talked about this. I think the community schools model offers one potential uh, solution where we start to think about wraparound services that are in schools, mental health supports that are in schools, uh, psychiatric social workers who are in schools, Mm. uh, behavior specialists who are in schools to help provide support in schools, in classrooms. But at the same time, to work with families and parents and caregivers so that they are aware of other resources that exist within communities that can also support their young people, because it's got to take that village approach. We need all hands on deck. And what schools can't do is just sort of throw our hands up and say, it's not our issue. Parents have to deal with that issue. Caregivers, because in some cases, parents and caregivers themselves are searching for answers, uh, are trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And so schools can play that role of being a partner and the well-being of young people. I think that would be ideal.
0: Speaking of student well-being, you'll want to tune in next week as we discuss how we can build stronger bridges between health and education, an issue that also impacts teachers. So much of the responsibility of the many different parts of a child's life are landing on the shoulders of teachers. So how are they coping with that?
1: I hear the argument from educators all the time that i've got a lot on my plate i've got a lesson plan i've got a unit plan i've got students who have a host of uh, academic needs students who are language learners students who are behind three or four grade levels students who behaviorally have a host uh, challenges the, the jobs of educators are harder today than they've been perhaps in our lifetimes right mm-hmm. and so I hear educators say now you want me to also be a social worker too mm-hmm. or you now you also want me to be a behavioral therapist too mm-hmm. and we're not saying that I mean many teachers already you know take on those jobs as it is but I think we we're we're gonna have to do we're gonna have to do multiple things at once mm-hmm. we're gonna have to help provide those supports in schools. In classroom, but we also need teachers to develop skills to identify trauma, what it looks like, and how to respond to it in an appropriate fashion, so it doesn't become worse for students. But yeah, the fact—I mean, I'm surprised too—that Medicaid is 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 that big of an investment in schools. Why not make that a more streamlined fashion to connect those supports and services to those communities that are greatest uh, in need of them? It just it make to me—it makes too much sense. Schools are places where we—you know the show—every single day. 50 million young people mm. go to these places called schools. Mm. There's no other place that young people go to with consistency every day, 5 days a week, 9 months out of the year than schools. If we can't take advantage of schools in terms of that support then shame on us.
0: Mm. Well,
1: <laughs> you, you just you
0: just laid it out there not, not only the moral but the practical argument of rethinking mm-hmm. schools themselves. So, here's the question, how do we build up schools through policies to be those hubs that they need to be? You you talked about community schools, but like, how do we think about staffing and talent and, you know, salaries and working conditions? How how do we bring these all together in a way that makes schools a place that you really would convince a lot of people they need to be. And in some cases they are, but
1: too often they're not. Yeah. You know, I think we, you know, what I was hopeful for Joe was when we had the, Pandemic occurred and school closures were happening all across the country. I was hopeful, again, perhaps naively hopeful and optimistic that Mm -hmm. parents and caregivers were seeing up close and personal how difficult it was to support their students academically because many were forced to do that. I was hopeful that many parents and caregivers would realize, wow, public education matters Mm -hmm. because my young people aren't well when they're not in school. Not just the academic piece that they're missing out on, but it's also the social piece that's so important. The connectedness, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the ability to interact with peers. So I was hopeful that we would see a significant shift in our outlook around how we see public education, that there'd be greater support for teachers. Let's just start there. There's been so many cases in the last five years around work stoppages because teachers are not fighting, number one, for teacher pay. Mm. which is another conversation of itself, but better working conditions, right? Where where teachers are saying, why don't we have more nurses? Why don't we have more counselors? Mm -hmm. Why don't we have smaller class sizes? Uh, So if we started to think about educational policy that says we're not going to let any young person in this country be in a classroom Mm -hmm. between pre-K to three, that's bigger than 25 students. Mm -hmm. We're not going to let any student beyond grade three to grade 12 being a classroom that doesn't have more than 30 students. Mm-hmm. That would be a starting place. If we had responsive educational policy that says that every school will have at least a nurse and a counselor, mm-hmm. right? And when there's high levels of need, they would even have additional supports and additional counselors. That would be a huge way. If mm-hmm. we had uh, responsible educational policy that said, we're going to reimagine school testing. That maybe Mm -hmm. this high-stakes testing movement needs to be rethought because there are multiple ways to assess what our students know that don't put pressure on teachers and students. Uh, So educational policy can begin to look at funding allocation, uh, where money's being spent, are we making sure that schools with the greatest need are getting the kind of supports that they need, that it's multiple years of funding. Uh, We can think from a, a number of different ways about how policy can say that teachers matter, Teacher pay can definitely be a part of that work as well. Mm -hmm. But what teachers have been saying in in the last several years is that it's our conditions that need to be improved. Mm -hmm. It's our support that needs to be improved. Take some things off of our plates and allow us to do the things that we want to do as as educators. So I think policy can begin to institutionalize Mm -hmm. and bake into the fabric of schools a much more humane, supportive in ways in which the adults who do this work can feel supported. The adults are better. I think we then increase the likelihood that the young people are better. Mm-hmm. But as you know, Joe, we're in a critical moment right now because we're seeing a significant uptick of people who are leaving the profession. Yep. Uh, Education Week had a survey that came out a couple months ago that showed about half, half of all teachers are thinking about leaving the profession mm-hmm. in the next couple of years. The American Association for Colleges of Teacher Education says that they were seeing a decrease of folks who are entering into the profession. So I'm not great at math, but if you tell me you have more outputs that inputs something tells me we're going to have an issue in terms of teachers in classrooms mm-hmm. and when that usually happens, we know that the the most Vulnerable areas namely urban communities and rural communities feel that squeeze the most mm-hmm. where they'll see fewer teachers fewer teachers oftentimes means larger class sizes fewer supports teachers who are overwhelmed and stressed. So we have to find some creative ways to incentivize folks to go into teaching, to reward those who are in the profession. Uh, we have to just think outside the box with our policy lens and our policy hat. And you, you're the expert on this, Joe, you know. We have to be better. And that's why I think this book is important because we can't wait. I love the title. We can't wait because if we wait, we run the risk of losing an entire generation of young people at a time where we're seeing emerging technologies uh, cre- being created in this in this new Economy and our kids will be left out uh, with no real viable way into it.
0: So it sounds like for all the newly elected officials today, you you just gave them the the playbook of of what to do, not only what to do, but to make education a, a compelling profession and also to to make strategic investments in schools where they haven't been historically.
1: Yeah, I get frustrated that education is not really a hot button issue mm. in our elections the way I think that it should. Mm. Sadly, the only time it seems to garner any real attention is when there's controversy, mm. you know, critical race theory or mm-hmm. LGBTQ issues that people are just sort of scared out of their mind about. That's what seems to all of a sudden put education on the front burner. And I'm saying there are real day-to-day challenges that we have in our nation's schools that should be at the forefront of every elected official's mind about how do we make education a priority for all of us.
0: Why are we so reactive or so narrow in how we think about education?
1: Yeah, that's that's another great question. I think that there is a way in which we see education as, if I can just be honest with you, Joe, it's women's work. Mm -hmm. It has been seen historically as women's work. Mm -hmm. We see education as something that if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it's working for my children, mm-hmm. then it must be working for other people's children when that's not the mm-hmm. case. Uh, I think we feel like public education, by and large, has sort of failed Lots of young people. So you see many of those elected officials. My question oftentimes is how many of them have their children in public schools? Yeah. Uh, many have sort of given up on public education and they've chosen to go the private school route. And again, every person has the right to educate their or send their kids to schools that they feel like are best for them. But it just raises the question about how much you how how good you feel about public education if you choose not to put your own children there. Mm. So I just think that there are folks who have given up and, and have kind of thrown in the towel on public education. And that's just a shame. I, I'm someone who's a product of public education. My, all my children are, are, are products of public education. I believe in in public education as a common good that when done right. Uh, can be something that transforms lives. And so we have to keep lifting up. This is our, our job as educational researchers and policymakers. We have to keep chopping that tree down so we can help people understand that this this thing over here called education matters. Our young people are there, this is how they're going to be sort of brought up, supported, educated. If we don't get this right, we pay a hell of a price when we don't get it done the right way.
0: James Baldwin explained, quote, the paradox of education is precisely this, that as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he or she is being educated, end quote. What Baldwin doesn't describe is a world where we have to first create the space for consciousness in schools. There are widespread efforts to ban books that can help young people make sense of their history and what role they may play in society. The very sacredness of public education is being tested in new and unexpected ways. Why don't more young people understand our shared history when they're in that sacred vessel of education to talk about it, to think about it, even colleges and universities which don't which kind of scoot around controversial elements of our history? I'm just, I'm curious. How how do we,
1: yeah. Yeah, that's the million dollar question because I think what you just described, Joe, is unfortunately not uncommon for lots of Americans that just don't know and understand that history. And I think part of that is rooted in the fact that we've done a masterful job in this country of telling a particular narrative around how this country came to be. We've done a masterful job of kind of omitting ugly parts of the history of this country. And it's very likely that you can go through 12 years of schooling, four years of college, multiple years beyond that for graduate degrees, all the things that you and I have both done, and you don't get a real assessment or honest and accurate depiction of this history that we're talking about. I always tell this story, about two years ago, I was asked to come give a talk at a College of Mississippi, I flew into Jackson, Mississippi, and the place I was going was about a 60-mile drive outside of Mississippi. Now, I'm a black man in America, so I get a little nervous driving through certain mm. parts of the South, and so I'm driving, and beautiful day outside, and I see this sign off to the side that says, Ida B. Wells Historical Home, mm. three miles away. Mm. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. I travel another couple miles down his. Historical monument, historical venue, Ida B. Wales, childhood home. So I had a little time on my hands, so I stopped. I got off the exit and went to this place about five, seven miles off the beaten path Mm. uh, to this Ida B. Wales historical uh, house. And so it was a Mm. very well-kept home and knocked on the door. And this woman answers the door and... Mm. She said, this is the house that Ida B. Wells. For those who don't know, Ida B. Wells was a big-time advocate for ending lynching. She mm-hmm. led lots of legislative fights to end lynching in the United States. Mm-hmm. She was a writer. She was an author. She was very much a civil rights advocate that doesn't get the kind of recognition that she deserves. So I spent like two hours in this home because mm-hmm. they tell her story. You know, this is where she grew up. This is where she did much of her work. This is where she did a lot of her organizing. This is how she kind of sort of you know gathered people to kind of sort of pushed for anti-lynching legislation. And so, as I was talking to the curator who was at the home, I happened to look outside and directly across the street from the house was an elementary school. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't noticed it the first time. And so, I, and I heard the kids outside and again, about a hundred yards away, this elementary school was there and the students were mostly black. And she told me, yeah, that's an elementary school there. I said, wow, I said, that's amazing. I said, I'm curious, do those kids who mm. go to that school, ever come to this house, mm. this museum, as a field trip or as as an excursion just to learn about the life and work of Ida B. Wells. Mm. And she said, I've been the curator for this home for the last 25 years. She said, and not a single time has anybody from that school ever wow. come to ask us about this home, never has a student group come for a field trip at this home. Ne- there's no connection. And to me, that moment, Joe, it was just kind of, it was mm-hmm. symbolic, but it was it was very real. Like, you know, that's how we're so disconnected from our history. Mm-hmm. Here you have this really powerful historical of a, of a legacy that sits right across the street, literally from an elementary school. Mm-hmm. And the young people in that school don't know who Ida B. Wells is, don't know her history, mm-hmm. are unaware of her contributions. And she grew up right across the street wow. from where they go to school every single day. And that to me becomes sort of metaphorically the, the, the way in which we have to do a better job of connecting the dots, of helping young people to understand their history because it, 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 our history matters. It explains why we are where we are mm-hmm. and we have to do a better job. And I think that my hope, my wish, my want for my newly born granddaughter mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. we, can, we can create the kind of world that we can unlearn some of this ugliness that we can become a more inclusive, loving, humane society that uh, recognizes that we can become a more perfect union, once again, like I said earlier.
0: Well, I I knew you were wiser, Dr. Howard. As soon as you had that grandbaby, you instantly just become... Of course, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) No, but that's an amazing example of the the juxtaposition of... You have the childhood home of Ida B. Wells, who we... Probably didn't hear about in school unless, unless, yep, I did. And then you you have a school that is literally across the street, and there's no connection. So it actually ties to a theme of from another episode. Linda Darling Hammond and Shauna Cook were talking about the science of learning and development, and how we tie students' lived experience and social context for them to build upon what what they know, so they can learn. And it sounds like. Kind of you you just said right there, if you know your history, it gives you a new understanding of of yourself and your role of society.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would
0: also add, Joe,
1: there are those who believe that if we teach the ugly parts of history, it leaves a bad taste Mm -hmm. in our young people's mouths and minds. And i think it comes down to how we tell that history because there are ugly episodes of history yes that's just part of our our story Hmm. but those those histories need to be told in a way that also shows the ways in which people came together Hmm. across racial backgrounds across religious backgrounds across a host of different set of identity groups to work toward creating more just laws Hmm. folks who fought folks who protested, folks who organized, folks who mobilized and say we can be better. Yeah. And to me, that's the, that's the spirit of what this country should be about, that when we see a wrong, that we can come together to make it right, mm. that when we see injustice, we can fight collectively uh, to make it more just. Mm. And so we can't just tell the story in a way that says it was awful, terrible, horrible. We have to talk about the, the, the brave men and women who put their lives on the line, Mm-hmm. many of whom lost their lives in the fight for justice, in the fight for equality. Uh, and we can't let their sacrifice be in vain. And I think that's the part that is oftentimes inspiring to me, where I frequently say, like I know you say, Joe, I can be doing more. Mm-hmm. I should be doing more. And we're both already crazy, crazy busy as it is. But you hear these these stories about these individuals who are just tireless in their efforts of of fighting for a more just. A society in the educational realm or mm-hmm. political realm or economic realm, whatever that realm might be, and you think that there are those of us who are constantly in the struggle, in the trenches to say we can create a more just society, that has to be the unifying element of what helps us to see how we can do better and how we can be better as Americans.
0: So one of the themes that we talk about in the book that we talked about a little bit when you interviewed me is that we are all policymakers. Mm-hmm. We are all policymakers in different facets in our lives, at, at home, at school, in our community, in church, at temple. So my question is for a parent who is intrigued to say, who's Tyrone Howard and what's he about? And what's this conversation about? What, what do you say to a parent who's trying to get into this space, even if they're not really eager to, but they feel compelled to do something? What, what do we say? What do you say?
1: Oh, wow I tell them these are our babies mm-hmm. uh, these are our children the these young people are our most cherished and prized possessions mm-hmm. and we we give them the world and we sacrifice a lot for them and if we want the best for them that requires uh, a significant investment of time you know Joe you're a dad I mean, there are times that you're probably dog tired, but yet you still will go to the back to school night. (laughs) Uh, You're still at the open house. You're still responding to a teacher's query. You're still asking questions. It's that kind of persistent investment Mm -hmm. in our young people that's required. And I tell parents and caregivers all the time that really your socioeconomic status, your racial ethnic background should not matter. You have the right to show up at schools, to ask questions, Um, to try to be in partnership with your children's schools. But you also have the right to demand something better if you feel like your children children are not getting it. Mm -hmm. So I think we've got to find ways to just be present. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this big sort of division in the literature around parental engagement versus parental involvement. And I think engagement's where we need to be, where, you know, we shouldn't just want parents to show up on set schedules and set times, back to school, open house parent-teacher conference, How can parents, and I see this in more affluent communities all the time, parents are present even when they're not invited. They're present without being asked. They're present because they want to ensure that what is happening with their children is to their liking and their satisfaction. That's the same level of engagement we need to see with all uh, caregivers and parents, Mm. that they just find a place to be involved. And there's so many places to be involved with our children's school. It's extracurricular. It's Saturday volunteer. It's throughout the school day. It's you name it. I just think that parents and caregivers have to say that I have a voice. I deserve to be at the table of where my children and other people's children are being educated.
0: Mm. And I appreciate that you said parents and caregivers
1: yeah i say that intentionally because i think we have to expand our notion of who the individuals are who are raising children today you know by some estimates according to the U.S. department of education i saw a report a couple years ago there are close to what i think the number i saw is about three and a half million young people who are being raised by grandparents wow we know that there's wow. about four hundred thousand young people in this country who are in foster care being mm-hmm. raised by foster parents. Mm-hmm. So we need to not be so narrow in our notion to think that all children are being raised by a biological mom and or dad, uh, or you know, two moms or two dads or whatever that, that arrangement might look like. But there are, there are grandparents, there are siblings, there are aunts and uncles who are raising students as well. And we have to see them as part of the community of folks that need to be a part of of the village that we are creating in terms of who um, are the caregivers of our young people? So yeah, I, I use that language intentionally. Dr. Howard, I want to thank you again for your time.
0: Uh, I want to thank you for your uh, friendship, your mentorship. over the years now, I've learned so much from you, and you are really a big reason why why this this book project happened, even the podcast. and it's always fun to get a chance to talk to you. So I want to thank you again, this is our children can't wait. You've heard from Dr. Tyrone Howard. Pick up the book, read the chapter, listen to the podcast. He has a lot more to share, but you got a, a sense of of how Dr. Howard thinks about the world, and hopefully, you feel compelled to do something after listening. Thank you. This is our children can't wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools and the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is a creative director and senior producer. It is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now from Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.